Take your Bibles out this morning, if you would please, and turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Uh, The ladies asked me if this morning I would uh, preach on our theme passage in VBS. And uh, the theme passage, the overall uh, passage that guided what was done this week, was Psalm 139. And I want to talk this morning on the subject matter, how great thou art. And uh, of course in this psalm, we see that God sees, God knows, and God saves. And that's what the children have been looking at this week in VBS. God sees, God knows, and God saves. And for example, on day one, uh, Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Day two, Jesus saw the woman at the well. Day three, Jesus saw Nicodemus. Day four, Jesus saw a blind man. And day five, Jesus saw the children. Of course, in each of these cases that he saw, he knew the persons involved, knew their needs, and reached out to them with the good news of salvation. And so it's been a wonderful week, and uh, I do just want to also echo the thanksgiving That was made earlier for those who worked in VBS in any capacity. Uh, Obviously, we couldn't do it without the volunteers. And so, thank you again. I do want to say a word about tonight. It's not just a movie. uh, But it is a movie with a tremendous Christian message. As I mentioned last week, we try to give you different formats uh, to invite uh, lost neighbors and friends and co-workers to. Sometimes... Folks won't come to a normal church service, but they might come to a movie night. And it'd be a movie night uh, where they would uh, find out about Jesus. And so that's really the purpose for tonight. It's, it's a different avenue for you to invite somebody that otherwise might not come. Uh, perhaps the folks you invited in VBS this week, uh, invite them back for tonight. So uh, we look forward Uh, to seeing you this evening. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Psalm 139. Notice it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. This was a psalm apparently used in the music of Old Testament Israel. It was used in worship. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before And lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. 
You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. All that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, open our understanding to this beautiful passage of Scripture where we learn all about you and your glorious attributes. Lord, we know that some things in this text might strike fear in the hearts of those who don't know you. But Lord, it strikes comfort in the hearts of those who do. Because there's nothing in our lives that we go through that hasn't first been sifted through your loving fingers. Thank you that you see, you know, and you save. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week, the children in VBS have been enjoying the theme, Submerged. In some of the materials, what's been highlighted is various underwater adventures. I got to thinking this week about underwater adventures. And thinking about things related to the ocean. And so I went online and I I found some fun facts and fascinating facts about the ocean that I wanted to share with you this morning. Did you know that 70% of the world's surface is ocean? And yet surprisingly we know very little about it. We made it all the way to the moon before we had discovered the largest mountain range on earth that is under the water. 94% of all life on planet earth is under the surface of the ocean. 94%. Only 5% of the ocean has been explored. We have better maps of the surface of Mars than we do the bottom of the ocean, including even the part of the ocean floor that is considered the United States. And more on that in a moment. 
The average depth of the ocean is 12,400 feet. Light can penetrate 330 feet. And that means that much of the planet's life dwells constantly in total darkness. 50% of the United States lies underneath the ocean. Now I know that's a confusing statement. What it refers to is the fact that it is 50% when you consider how far out our U.S. jurisdiction extends from land on its three coastal borders. There are more artifacts and remnants of history in the ocean than in all of the world's museums combined. Now here's a brain teaser. Did you know that underneath the surface of the ocean there are waterfalls and even upside down lakes? The dolphin sleeps with only half its brain asleep at a time and the other side awake with one eye open so it can watch for predators. Some of you are good at doing that in church when it's sermon time, right? An electric eel gives off enough electricity to power 10 light bulbs. An octopus has three hearts and blue blood. Male squid will only show their softer, gentler side to females, their brown color. When other males come around, they will show their hostile white color. When a male and a female squid are swimming side by side, half of his body closest to the female will be brown and the other half will be white as a warning to other males to stay away. If the female crosses over him or under him and moves to the other side, instantly he's able to switch the colors of his body so that she is always seeing his softer, gentler side. The call of the blue whale is at 188 decibels, making its call the loudest of any animal on the planet. Seahorses are the only animal where the males are the ones who give birth to their young and then raise them and care for them. A shrimp's heart is in its head. Folks, just think about it. It is our creator, it is God who made all of that, who made all that we see around us on planet earth. And it is our creator God who made you and me. Amen? That is what Psalm 39 is all about. Psalm 139 is theology of the best sort. You see, theology that only stirs the mind can be cold and clinical and not really touch life itself in a personal way. On the other hand, theology that stirs the heart alone can be superficial and lacking in substance. Psalm 139 contains theology that touches both the head and the heart. 
Folks, we're challenged in our thinking by Psalm 139 because of the greatness of God. We're challenged to trust Him all the more. And at the same time, we're comforted in our hearts by Psalm 139. We're comforted because even though the world seems out of control, we know from this text of Scripture it's not out of control. This week, the kids have been taking a closer look at God, just as a diver would be submerged and explore the sea. And so what I want us to do this morning, let's submerge. Let's go underneath the surface of Psalm 139, and let's dig in a little deeper and see what Psalm 139 says about the greatness of God. First of all this morning, I want you to see the greatness of God's omniscience. The greatness of God's omniscience in the first three verses. Omniscience is the theological word that refers to God's knowledge. God knows everything. And folks, as He knows everything, His knowledge is complete. Again, David doesn't reflect on that in some kind of cold clinical way. He applies the great doctrine of God's omniscience to his own life. He points out here that God is able to see our hearts. He says, you have searched me and known me. He knows all about us. I think of the Lord Jesus with people. You remember there in John chapter 1 when Philip went to get Nathanael and said, We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael responded by saying, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And when Jesus approached Nathanael, he said, Nathanael, I saw you before uh, I even got here while you were still seated beneath the fig tree. And Nathanael ended up saying, My Lord and my God. And then I think of the woman caught in adultery there in John chapter 8. Some scholars believe that as Jesus was there on the ground writing in the dirt that probably what he was writing was the sins of all those people who were accusing her. How did he know that? Because again, as David is pointing out here, his knowledge is complete. He knows everything about us. God is able to see our position, verse 2. God knows when I sit and when I rise. He knows when I lie down. Verse 2 again, God is able to see our thoughts. Now folks, think about that. We believe that our thoughts are private and nobody else knows our thoughts unless we open our mouth and we communicate what is on our minds. But David here proclaims that God knows even all of our thoughts. Your thoughts are not hidden from God. God is able to see our words, verse 4. God is able to see our days, verse 16. As David says at the close of verse 3, God is intimately acquainted with all of my ways. I think of the small town prosecuting attorney who was trying a case I told you about a couple of years ago. As his first witness, he called an elderly woman to the stand who had lived in this town all of her life and she uh, tended to be the biggest gossip around. Well, he approached the witness stand and he said, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? 
She said, why, yes, I've known you since you were a boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, and you talk about people behind their backs. Well, this lawyer was stunned, and having lost his composure, he didn't know what else to say. And so he pointed over to the defense attorney, and he said, Mrs. Jones, do you know him? She said, why, yes, I've known him too since he was a young boy. He's also a disappointment. He's lazy. He has a drinking problem. He cheated his way through law school. And he can't find any woman who will give him the time of day, much less marry him. And he's one of the most crooked lawyers in the state. Well, all of a sudden, the judge's gavel came down and he said, Counsel, approach the bench. They approached the bench. And he said, If either one of you ask her if she knows me, I'm going to hold you in contempt of court. Well, God knows all about us. And all that David can do is conclude in verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot obtain it. It sounds like Paul in Romans 11, doesn't it? When Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his way. Arthur Pink wrote, God knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. A.W. Tozer also writes, God has never learned from anyone. God cannot learn. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity? He would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an archangel or seraph, is to think of someone other than the Most High God, maker of heaven and earth. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Because all, because God knows all things perfectly, He knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor except when drawing men out for their own good does He seek information or ask questions. Isn't that great? God is omniscient. Now folks, for some, like those who have something to hide or don't know the Lord, that would cause an uneasiness. 
But that's not David's point here. David thinks of God's omniscience that God knows everything about him and he's awed by that. He is comforted by that. Because folks, it means that there is no trial in your life. There's no circumstance in your life that you go through that hasn't first of all been allowed in your life by loving God. The great thing about God is that he knows us and he loves us anyway. Romans 5.8, Paul says, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He knows everything about you. And he has a wonderful plan for your life. Just as he told Israel in Jeremiah 29, 11, He said, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. The wisdom of God. Folks, think about that. The wisdom of God. You know what? It would be foolish of me not to seek. God's wisdom in my life because I'm finite I don't know tomorrow and I don't see into the future but I know one who does I know one who does and that's why in in Proverbs chapter 3 the Bible says trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean upon your own understanding acknowledge him in all of your ways and he will make your path straight if you're a young person God is able to give you the wisdom that you need to get into the right career in your life, to find the right mate. If you're a senior adult, you might have gone through the loss of a spouse. You might be going through some kind of illness or disease. And God's omniscience says that God knows all about you. God knows what your needs are. And so the Bible says you can cast all your care upon Him because He cares for you. God's omniscience. Second thing I want you to see is the greatness of God's omnipresence. He says in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now, omnipresence is the theological word that simply means God is everywhere all the time. Look at verse 7, the question that David asked. Now, folks, it's not that David wants to escape. David is writing out of a sense of awe. He's enthralled with all of this. But the question comes up, if somebody did want to run away from God, would they be able to? Absolutely not. 
Now folks, the background to this is probably the fact of what all of Israel's neighbors believed in their pagan religions at the time. They believed that their gods only had jurisdiction over their borders. And so if somebody living in one of these pagan nations crossed over into another country, their thought was, I've left the jurisdiction of my God and I'm out of his care now because he can't go with me but is that the true and the living God is that the God of the Bible absolutely not notice what he says here in verse 8 God is in heaven God's in heaven David's coming up with some hypothetical scenarios here he's naming different places that if he went there what if I tried to go high enough if I could somehow or another keep going up into the far reaches of space and even reach heaven. Would I get away from God there? No, because heaven is God's throne. Well, in the next part of verse 8, he points out that God is even in hell. David thinks, well, perhaps I could sink so low in life that I would be out of God's sight. I could go down into the depths of hell. Could I get away from God there? No. You see, folks, it is God who is in charge of hell, not the devil. In fact, the Bible says that one of these days, God is going to cast Satan into the lake of fire. God rules even over hell. Verse 9. He changes from vertical dimensions to horizontal. If I can't get away from him, if I go up or down, how about if I go this way or that way? And so he begins uh, pointing out in verse 9 about these horizontal dimensions, pointing out that God's at the beginning of the day. The wings of the dawn, this is probably a reference to going as far east as you can possibly imagine. When the sun comes up over the horizon, what does it look like? It looks like you could travel over to that spot. Well, we know the earth's round and can't do that. But folks, nevertheless, to the, to the naked eye, it looks like when the sun rises that you could go right over there to it, doesn't it? And, and David is talking here about going that direction as far east as you can possibly imagine. Could I get away from God going that way? No. And then next, notice what he adds to that. God is in the remotest part of the sea there in verse 9. In David's time, when they talked about sea, what did they usually mean? They meant the Mediterranean, which was to their west. And so he is saying, if I could get on a boat and go as far possible across the sea west, could I get away from God that direction? No. Who learned that lesson in the Old Testament? Jonah. Remember Jonah? God said, son, go east to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites who were part of the Assyrians, the 
the, the Nazis of their day, a vicious group of people that everybody feared. But God wanted to get the good news to them. And so he was going to send his prophet. Jonah didn't want to go there. So what's Jonah do? Jonah goes down to Joppa and he buys a ticket to go to Tarshish. He's going westward on the sea thinking he can get away from God. And God caused a great storm on the, on the sea. They threw him overboard. And then God had prepared a great fish and said, swallow that preacher. And that fish must have said, I don't like preacher. They're tough and chewy. And God said, swallow him anyway. And so that's what the great fish did. Jonah learned he couldn't get away from God going, going that direction. And that's what David is saying. Verses 11 and 12, God's in the darkest places. Men commit evil deeds in the dark. They want to hide. But folks, we can't hide from God. God can find you wherever you are. God can lead you wherever you are. His omnipresence. And then thirdly, he talks about his omnipotence. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Omnipotence. Theological word for absolute power. The absolute power that God has. And folks, he speaks of God's absolute power in relationship to human life. Again, I mentioned to you, this is a personal psalm. You see, he could have spoken about God's absolute power in relationship to what God did in Genesis 1. What God do in Genesis 1? God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke, and he created all that is. The sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens, the earth, the oceans, the animals, you and me. David could have talked about God's omnipotence in relationship to Genesis 1. And that would have been powerful and that would have been true. But again, personal. He's talking about God's omnipotence as it's related to you and me. God's work in human life. And he points out here that God's omnipotence is seen in the fact that he made us and he molded us. We're not the product of chance. No life is just an accident. We're not the product of evolution. We're the creation of God. God is a purposeful God. He doesn't do anything without purpose or reason. There is a purpose for you and there's a reason for you. He says, thou didst form. God is intimately involved in the creation of a child in the womb. In fact, he's not just involved, he's more than involved. He's the creator and developer of that little life. God forms life. He says, we're all here fearfully and wonderfully made. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. The Bible states that we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. Now what's meant by that? Well, the more traditional view is that the image of God in the person refers to reason, 
and intelligence. Man's biological classification is homo sapien. Sapiens is Latin for wise, intelligent, understanding. And so homo sapiens refers to the thinking man. The creature who reasons. The creature who thinks and has powers of discernment and understanding. Whereas the animals operate on instinct. Then there's the relational view. Man's ability to enter into very formal and cohesive relationships and build complex communities. Then there's the functional view. The fact that man is to rule or have dominion over creation. Then there's the spiritual view. The fact that the Bible says that God is spirit in John 4. And in Genesis 2 we're told that God breathed life. A living soul into the man. He became a living soul. Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't say that about any other creature but it says it about man that God breathed into man a living soul the implication there we're more than flesh and blood we've got a spirit that is intended for intimacy and communion with God folks the image of God involves all of those things And David is proclaiming here that God is the creator of it all. God is the author of it all. God made you and God made me in the image of God. You know, there's been an unfortunate debate in the world today about when life begins. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, speculated... That the fetus becomes human when it quickens in the womb. That is, when the mother is finally able to feel it. But we know today, however, that the movement of the baby is only a matter of degree. The baby is moving all the time. Others have argued that the fetus becomes human only when it's old enough to survive outside of the womb. But advances in the care of premature babies make it possible for even extremely small infants to survive. Certainly infants that are younger and smaller than many of those that are being aborted. It's increasingly common today to identify life with brain activity. But we know there's brain activity in the unborn child even before the mother is aware that she's pregnant. For that matter, there is a beating heart in the circulation of the baby's own blood as well. Folks, the problem with trying to determine a point before which the developing child is fully human is that there isn't one. From the moment of conception, it is human life and it is fearfully and wonderfully made obviously this text right here is a text that's often used in the debate today about abortion and that's not my purpose today but let's just look at one little argument today in favor of life the abortion rights supporter says but can't a woman do with her body whatever she wants Two arguments against that. 
One Christian and one scientific. The Christian answer to that is that the Bible says you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You've been bought with the price. Your body belongs to God. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And the second scientific argument, through genetic research and genetic mapping that really took off in the 90s, we've known that the baby inside of, of the womb is not a part of the mother's body. It is a separate life with a separate and distinct DNA code. It's not the woman's body. It's a different life altogether. The Bible's been saying that all along. Finally, modern science is catching up to ancient scripture. Amen? David talks about God doing all of this in his omnipotence. And God seeing his unformed substance. Remember what he told the Jeremiah, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God's omnipotence is also seen in the fact that he determines our days, verses 15 and 16. He orders the length of our days. Obviously, if somebody goes out uh, and, and does something that to instantly take their life or somebody else's life, we can't blame God for that. For example, in the case of somebody murdering somebody else, don't call the breaking of God's word, God's will, it's murder. I told you before about a a New Testament professor that I had. Godly gentleman. And he said he would never forget the time that he was at a funeral home. And there was a family, a couple who had a young daughter, a teenage daughter that had been brutally murdered. And he listened to this couple come through the line to minister to this other couple. And, and folks, no doubt they meant well. People mean well when they go through the line. They just sometimes don't know what to say. Sometimes if you don't know what to say, it's better not to say anything. But they went through the line and they expressed their sorrow over the tragedy of, of the murder of this young girl. But they, and then they told the parents, but you know what? There's one thing amidst it all that you can be comforted by. You can be comforted by the fact that you know what happened to your daughter was God's will. No, 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 no. Don't ever call the breaking of God's word God's will. There's a natural course, though, to life that God ordains. And unless by a sinful act we violate that, there's a course that God has set to every life, every single life. God's determined your days. Not just your weeks, not just your months, not just your years and your decades, but this psalm right here says... That God determined your very days, the length of your days. Now look at the way David concludes this psalm. There in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Then over in verse 19... 
All that you would slay the wicked. And we're going to talk about that. And finally in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What does David do in conclusion to talking about God's omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence? David glories in God. David glories in God. It's as though David is thinking, God, how stupid I have been. I have fretted over life. I have fretted over being a king. I have fretted over hard times in life. I've even fretted over my enemies. And it's all because until now I've not really gotten a good glimpse at you. Somebody said one time that if you have big problems, it's probably because you have a small God. But if you realize in the big picture that your problems are small, it's because you understand what a big and an awesome God you have. David glories in God. David prays, secondly, for an end to God's enemies. It's beyond his comprehension that anybody could take God's name in vain or shake their fist in his face. And so David asked God simply to erase them from the earth. Now folks, under the new covenant, what do we do with a prayer like this? The Bible tells us that we're to love our enemies. But what about God's enemies? God certainly has his enemies just look around today. With our enemies, the Bible says that we're not to take vengeance into our own hands. What about God's enemies? I think under the new covenant, what you and I need to do is pray that the veil would be lifted from their eyes, that they would see the glory of God in Christ and be saved. That's exactly how Paul dealt with God's enemies who were the Jews. Remember what he prayed for them? They were God's enemies in in the sense of enemies to the gospel, the new covenant. Everywhere Paul went, they would resist that message about Jesus Christ and fight against that message. And in fighting against that message, they were fighting against the very grace of God and what God was doing in the new covenant. And so what did Paul do? Paul prayed in Romans 9 and Romans 10 both. He said, my heart breaks for those who don't know God. And I pray that the veil would be lifted, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that they might see the glory of God in Christ and be saved. I think that's how we need to pray today for all of those who are enemies against the gospel. And then David prays here for God to search him. Now folks, verse 23 and 24 is interesting, isn't it? Because at the beginning of the psalm, David said, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And now at the end, David is saying, God, search me. 
The difference is that at the beginning of the psalm, David is affirming what God does anyway as God. God is sovereign and he searches us. We can't keep God from being God and from doing what he does. But by the end of the psalm, when David has gloried in these attributes of God, David is saying, God I want you to do what I know you already do. I want my life to be laid bare before your searching eyes. I want you to deal with me in your loving kindness. And God, if there is any way in me whatsoever that is grievous to you, I want you to point it out because I want to get right with you. Folks, isn't that how we should respond to a sovereign God? God, because you are who you are, and you're omniscient, and you're omnipresent, and you're omnipotent, because you are who you are, and you're able to do what you're able to do, then God, I want all of your work applied to my life, because God, I know whatever you do in relation to me is going to be the right thing at the right time. There's some lessons in all of this. First of all, God knows you. He knows where you hurt. He knows where you need comfort. He's Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals our hurts. Come to Him. Tell Him about your hurts. Likewise, He knows where you need repentance and change. Folks, we don't hear a lot about repentance today, do we? But God knows where you need to repent. And you know what? I have a sneaking suspicion. You know where you need to repent. God can shed light on that. And God can give you the strength that you need in order to change. Third lesson. God is able to lead you through the best of circumstances or the worst of circumstances. There is no experience that you and I go through that God can't be there to guide us. You never have to worry about being alone. You're not alone. God's with you. Finally, know that God is able to sustain you. He has the power. He created you. He created you in His image. You're His. If you've come to Him by faith in Jesus Christ, you're part of His family. And He is able to do in your life that which He promises that He can do. And so you can rest in Him. Amen. God, we thank you for these words about your attributes. Words inspired. Words that come to us through the pen of David, but are inspired by your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that you're great and you're awesome. You are the living God. You know all about us. You're with us wherever we go. 
And you have all power to bring about your purposes in our lives. God, we thank you for such rich teaching in the Bible. Because it assures us that life and the universe itself is not just careening around in chaos by chance. By whatever men do, by whatever nations of the earth do, or kings or presidents do. Life is not out of control and going nowhere. You've got a purpose in it all. You've got a purpose in us. God, may we find strength in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.